Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 10 this morning in the Scriptures. Isaiah chapter 10. Assyria, as you well know, was one of the most powerful ancient empires in the world of Isaiah's day. It was actually a civilization for 2,000, 2,500 years, an empire for like several hundred, five, six, seven hundred of those years. And in Isaiah's time and the period after that, the uh, as it was called, the as it has come to be known, the, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian Empire at its great height of power came to dominate most of the Middle East, what we now call Egypt and Israel and Jordan and Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and part of Iran. That was the extent of that great Assyrian Empire. And it was a a mighty force to be reckoned with. It was known, well known, for its military might and prowess and, in fact, kind of really the brutality. That was the reputation uh, of that army and that people. One historian uh, said this, it is tempting to see the Assyrian Empire, which dominated the Middle East from 900 to 612 BC, as a historical forebear of Nazi Germany, an aggressive, murderously vindictive regime supported by a magnificent and successful war machine. As with the German army of World War II, the Assyrian army was the most technologically advanced of its day and was a model for others generations afterwards. The Assyrians were the first to make extensive use of iron weaponry, and not only were iron weapons superior to bronze, but could be mass-produced, allowing the equipment equipping of very large armies indeed. Assyria was like the superpower of its day, equivalent perhaps to the the United States or Russia or China of our day. And like Russia today, Assyria was flexing its military and political muscle and expanding westward and southward into Syria and into the northern parts of Israel and really all the way down to where it was threatening Judah. And already, many mighty city, cities of great other ancient civilizations had fallen under its heel. And now the threat was becoming more and more real for the holy city itself. And in that context, the question would naturally come to the minds of God's people. How should we think about this? How should we view what's happening? How are we supposed to interpret all of these events that are unfolding on the world stage? And that's a very interesting question to ask. A very significant question. It's been a significant question historically. It was a significant question in ancient times. Why are world events transpiring as they are? For example, in the waning days of the, of the might of the Roman Empire, many years later, people were asking that same question. Why? Why is the empire 
disintegrating. What's behind this? What's driving this? What's the meaning of all of this? And, of course, the conclusion that many people came to was that it was due to, the, it was the fault of, really, Christianity, right? They believed that Christianity had caused the peoples of the empire to abandon the gods, and now the gods were abandoning them. They had uh, influenced people to stop worshiping the emperor. They had undermined the social worldview and the cohesion of the people of, peoples of that empire and had brought them to a state of weakness. That was the interpretation on those events that was given by many people in the, that day. And it's still being asked today, that kind, these kinds of questions. In the book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Jared Diamond recounted in that book, right in the first chapter, a conversation that he had with a local politician while he was doing some research work in New Guinea. And that politician asked this question. Why does the West have so much and we have so little? And that began Diamond on this quest for an answer. And the answer that he came up with that's purported in the book is a kind of geographical determinism that it was due to cultural evolutionary forces that were shaped ultimately by the, geogra the, the, the geography of a particular people. And that's why some were wealthy and others weren't, and some prospered and others didn't, and some had much and some had little. And uh, that theme is, on, he tries to trace that theme in, in history. So there's another explanation, right, for why things are the way they are. Why is the world the way it is? Why are some nations powerful? Why are others weak? Why do borders change in time? Why, are one, why do one people rise and another fall? People are looking for answers. Israel was looking for an answer. Why this Assyrian advance? Why the downfall of the Israelite cities? What is going on? And folks, God is his own interpreter, right? God is his own interpreter. And God sent his word in the mouth of Isaiah the prophet, revealed that word, that interpretation of those historical events to the people of Judah, that is to those who had ears to hear and eyes to see. He revealed to them how they should think about these world-changing events. And by inspiration, in inclusion in the Scripture, continues to teach us how we should think about, how we should interpret world events even in our own day. The kinds of things that we hear about in the news every day when we turn on the television or open the internet. And in this passage, in chapter 10 of Isaiah, the Lord really teaches His people three major lessons about how they should think about world events. And then from there, He goes on to make two applications, two indications of how his people, if they receive this word, will respond, how they should respond in light of what he's revealed. So beginning in chapter 10 and verse number 5 of Isaiah, God speaks about the great Assyrian empire as it threatened Israel. 
Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. I want you to take a look at the text again. What is it that God calls the nation of Assyria? What? His rod, right? You see that? Verse 5. My rod. Assyria was God's tool, God's implement. In this case, his implement of chastisement. And I don't know if you remember last week that we, we read again and again this repeated refrain in chapter 9 and the early part of chapter 10. The Lord's, for all this, for all that God had done, and for all the warnings, and for all the chastisement, the people continued to rebel. And for all this, the Lord's hand was stretched out still, right? So the Lord's hand is stretched out. Now I want to ask you, what's in the Lord's hand? And what's in the Lord's hand is His rod. And His rod is the empire of Assyria. The Lord is holding this nation out over His people to bring a judgment upon them. And the weapons of their warfare, that is the Assyrians' own weapons, were, according to God's interpretation, the implements of His fury. And if you'll notice verse 6, the Lord continues to credit Himself or to point to Himself as the origin or the author of what's happening here. Verse 6, He credits Himself with sending them. You see that? You might want to underline that word. I have, I send them. And it is by His, and you might want to underline this one, by my command, by the Lord's command that they make headway. And then if you follow down, jump down to verse 12, you see again this kind of language when it says that the Lord will use the people of Assyria until He has what? Until He has finished His work, right? So the Lord identifies Himself as both the author and, in fact, the finisher of this advance of the Assyrian Empire against Israel. I want you to notice a second thing right, right here in, this, in this, these couple of verses, and that is this, that God's wielding of this tool, this Assyrian army, his rod, God's wielding of this rod is not arbitrary or unjust in any way. Look again at verse 6. The Lord is wielding this rod against a what? Against a godless or hypocritical, right? A godless people, a godless nation have I sent him. And last week, we saw how God sent His Word to those people again and again and again. His words of warning through His prophets, His chastisements, His discipline, His increasing uh, chastisement to, to, to turn their hearts back to Him, and yet they hardened their hearts more, and so His hand was stretched out still. The Lord is not unjust 
in bringing the rod against these people. He's not unjust. He's not, this is not arbitrary. This is a settled and righteous act of the Almighty God. And notice also the very wording of this text in verse 6. The very wording reminds them that God is doing to them exactly what He had already warned them He would do if they did not repent. Look at the wording of verse 6. You may or may not notice the the connection right off, but I think when I point it out, hopefully it will click. The middle of verse 6, he says, I command him, this is Assyria and the king of Assyria, I, God says, command him to take what? Spoil, shalal, and to seize what? Plunder, that is baz, Hebrew. I command him to take shalal and to seize baz. Shalal and baz. Does that sound familiar? Maybe or maybe not. If you remember back from earlier in the book, you may recall that the name of Isaiah's second son is Maher Shalal Hash Baz, which meant speed to the spoil, haste to the prey. These very words, the same terminology that's coming up again here in this text. In other words, Isaiah's own family has already been, for these people, in addition to his word, in addition to God's acts, Isaiah in the flesh, his family in the flesh are... God's warnings to these people that they had consistently rejected. And so while the Assyrians do brutal and ungodly things in their own right, we see in this text that they are serving the utterly righteous purposes of the Lord God of hosts. And that's really the first major lesson in this whole passage is this, that God is sovereign over kings and nations and that He uses nations, even evil empires. He uses these nations as His tools or as His implements to accomplish His own good and just purposes, right? God is sovereign over all using the nations of the world as his tools to accomplish his own good purposes. This is the divine interpretation of these historical political events. And of course, other scriptures bear that out as well. And in fact, extend this principle to demonstrate that God is working his will among all nations He's using all of the peoples to bring about his own purposes. Acts chapter 17, one of the most fascinating passages in this light, Paul is speaking to the people of Athens. To the Athenians, he says that, you know, of course, there were idols, there were uh, statues to many gods. You could go there today and see some of these very statues still standing. Um, And he confronted the people that there is only one God, there is only one God of heaven. The same, they needed to learn the same lesson Nebuchadnezzar had learned, right? There is only one true God, and He is not dependent in any way upon His creation. In fact, His creation is entirely dependent upon Him for life and breath and everything. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, Paul taught. And then he said this in verse 27, or verse 26, Acts chapter 17. 
And this God, this one true God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And then notice what he says about these nations. He has determined allotted periods. The Lord God of heaven determined the timing of the rise and the fall of these nations and empires. And, he says, he has determined the boundaries of their what? Of their dwelling place. That is, the geographic extent of their influence and control is all determined by God. Their times, their seasons, and their geographic extent are all determined by God for His own good purpose. And that purpose is stated now in verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Now God's, the unfolding of God's purpose is not always simple and obvious but it is always, as here, righteous and good. God's purpose is always righteous and good. God exercises His sovereignty by controlling the nations, using them as His tools to implement His own righteous purposes. Now, are we willing to accept God's interpretation about that? Are we willing to believe that about about, well, about what was happening in Isaiah's day, but also about what's happening in our day? Are we willing to renew our minds when we hear of world events and we ask ourselves, why? What's happening? What is going on? How could all this happen? Are we willing to interpret history according to divine revelation? I love the way that the World News Group ends its daily video podcast or broadcast. They end it by these words every single day. Whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. That's what, I, that's, what, that's what we're reading here. That's what we're seeing. Can we receive that? When one country invades its neighbor, or when an abortion sympathizer is seated on the Supreme Court, or when a million other things happen in the news that perplex us and give us, um, cause us to wonder what God is doing, Can we believe that while there are human intentions at one level, that there are divine, perfect divine intentions working on the most profound level? Well, what about, some of us can say, yeah, I believe that. I believe that nations rise and fall by the Lord's command. But what about when it hits home right to you, right? What about when you face suffering and difficulty and tragedy in your life, and you're saying, why? What is going on? Where are you now, God? Can you say, God, I know that you are in control of all things, men and nations. What are you trying to do in my life? I yield to that. I yield to you. Maybe the Lord is trying to chasten you, as he clearly was with the people of Israel here. Maybe He is trying to humble you. Maybe He is trying to teach you your own insufficiency in yourself. Can you believe? Can you really believe 
that even if his instrument that he picks up happens to be a rod, that his purposes are always good. For whoever spares the rod hates his, what? Son. But whoever loves his son is diligent to discipline him. In verses 7 and following, we begin to see unfolded the, the second lesson. And God's intent here is, as He's revealed it, is to use Assyria to accomplish His good purpose for Israel. But as for the king of Assyria, look at verse 7, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. In other words, what's true about the actual king of Assyria? He has different intentions from God and a whole different way of thinking about this than God, right? In his heart, verse 7, middle of the verse, but in his heart, it is, excuse me, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. God's intention is to chasten and ultimately to purify his people so that they would stand as a holy people who trust in the Lord God of heaven alone. That's God's intent, but his intent is to destroy these people and to utterly um, uh, uh, take over the nations of the earth. And do we realize then that the same, the, the self-same action or event can be animated by different intentionalities. In other words, an illustration, Joseph and his brothers, right? This probably came, comes to most of our mind. Joseph and the end of his mistreatment by his brothers and mistreatment by others and ended up in, in prison, falsely accused, sold as a slave. After all of this, the Lord brings him out. The Lord begins to raise him up and he has an opportunity to say something to his brothers. What would you say? <laughs> oh, what would you say, huh? Well, <laughs> he says, you meant it, you meant evil by it. You meant it for evil. But, then he says, but what? But God meant it for good. Now let me ask you, did God intend the things that happened to Joseph? Yeah. He says, God meant it. Sometimes we say God just allowed it. God permitted it. And, and there is a sense in which, you know, the, the, how do we say it? We know that there's something different about what God is doing in His bringing wounding on His people. It doesn't, it doesn't come from His heart, as it were, to speak as a man. It doesn't come from His heart, as it were, like it does to... To, to do them good. It is a means to doing them good. But God meant this. Right? Our theology should be able to say that. God intended, there was an intentionality of God behind these very evil actions of men. God meant it, though, for a different purpose, right? God had a very different motivation in, in, in animating these actions than did the evil men. And of course, the greatest example of all in, in human history, I'm sure, has to be the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, which was at one and the same time 
the act of evil, godless, wicked men for which they will be held accountable, and also the absolute, sovereign, eternally decreed work and intention of God the Father Himself. And so, can we acknowledge then that there are many acts which happen to us or happen in the world which are truly evil, and we should not shy away from saying that, and yet none of them is outside of the intentions, the intentionality of God, righteous though it always is. That's what's going on here. And in verse 8, not only did the Assyrian king have a different purpose or motivation and driving what he was doing, but he also had a very different way of thinking about what was happening as uh, from what our Lord revealed. Uh, for he says, verse 8, this is the king of Assyria, he says, are not my commanders all kings? <laughs> and if all of your underlings are in fact kings, then you are a mighty person indeed, right? You are a person of international power and influence. This is his view of himself. He goes on to recount his conquests of other kingdoms surrounding Israel and Judah. Is not Calno, he said, like Carchemish? Didn't they end up at this, in the same fate? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria uh, like Damascus? What is it that all of these had in common? They all came under the thumb of Assyria. He said, what I did to one, I'll do to them all. And so verse 10, as my hand, he says, reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and to her idols as I have done to Samaria and to her images? And his thinking, I mean, it just... I think on the one hand, it really shows the spiritual ignorance of the Assyrian king, right? Because he says, hey, listen, I've conquered peoples and nations whose idols were much more plentiful and bigger and grander than your idols. They really were devoted to their gods and their gods didn't save them. And you're trusting... So you, and this is also, by the way, a, a sad commentary on the people of Judah and upon the people of Israel whose land was filled with idols. In fact, some of the very idols that were worshipped by the surrounding peoples who'd been conquered. In one way, you can kind of understand the Assyrian king's um, rationale, right? Those same gods didn't do anything for them. You think they're going to do something for you? That ought to have said something to the people of Israel and the people of Judah. But he's boasting himself in every respect. And let's skip verse 12 for now and just go on down to verse 13. Assyria continues to speak by the strength, the king says, by the strength of my hand... I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of the peoples. Wow, think about that statement in light of Acts chapter 17 that we just read, right? That God uh, determines the boundaries of their habitations. This king says, I did this, I removed the boundaries. He says, I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their treasure like a bull. I bring down those who sit on thrones. This was the interpretation of this worldly king. He was 
sovereign. And you see it, my, I, my, I, 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 I. My hand, verse 14, has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. He's like saying, you know, I took your own from you and there was nothing you could do about it. Not a thing. This is the interpretation of the Assyrian king. This is my doing. And you can read it in his own words. In the words of this king recorded in a clay tablet or kind of a prism called the Taylor prism that was discovered in the mid-1800s. It's now uh, on display, I believe, in the British Museum. Uh, it comes from the Royal Library of Ashurbanipal with many texts that were discovered there, including several of these tablets that uh, describe the, uh, the conquests of the king of Assyria. In this case, the king, uh, a king called Sennacherib. And uh, in there, right there, and I'll put it on the, I think there's a picture of it there. In Akkadian cuneiform, right there on that tablet, you can still hear, if you were in the British Museum, you could still hear the world's interpretation of these historical events. Here's in part what it says. Sennacherib, the great king, the mighty king, king of the world, king of Assyria, king of the four quarters, the wise shepherd, favorite of the great gods, guardian of the right, lover of justice, who lends support and comes to the aid of the destitute, who performs pious acts, perfect hero, mighty man, first among all princes, the powerful one who, con who consumes the insubmissive, who strikes the wicked with the thunderbolt. And it goes on, I accomplished the defeat of Merodach-Baladan, king of Babylonia. Later he says, I opened his treasure house. I brought out his servants. I counted the spoil. Line 18 of that column just reads like this, quote, I besieged, I captured, I destroyed, I devastated, I burned with fire, period, end quote. As for Hezekiah, it goes on to say, Hezekiah the Jew, we'll read about that later in this book, he says, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem my royal city. Almost the same imagery, isn't it? I plucked the, the right out of the bird's nest and put the bird in a cage. I had everything I wanted. But now, hear the word of the Lord God of heaven in Isaiah Chapter 10, verse 15. Take a look again at the text. Verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? <laughs> or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or a staff should lift him who is not wood. If I'd had a, an axe, I could have brought to church just thrown over here on this stage, and there it is sitting there? Would any of you expect that during this course of this sermon, that axe is going to pick me up and start swinging me around? How foolish. How foolish, the Lord says, is the boast of this king who acts as if it is a man 
who brings about His own purposes in the world in any kind of ultimate sense. The world's thinking is entirely backwards. It is entirely upside down, isn't it? And that really is the second major lesson in this passage that the great powers of this world do not share nor do they acknowledge the thoughts and intentions of the sovereign God. They do not share nor acknowledge His intentions and His thoughts. We are, in other words, by all of this, we're being taught by these two points so far and by the third one to follow, we're being taught by God Himself a biblical worldview of history. Right? That's what, that's what, that's what's happening to us today, whether we know it or not. We're being taught a biblical worldview of history. That is, that in spite of the evil intentions of men and nations, and in spite of their utter ignorance or even their outright rejection of it, the reality is that God is working all His good and holy will among men. That's the lesson that's being taught to us. Now, the wicked do not share his thoughts nor his intentions. They have their own agenda. There is wickedness in their hearts. And often, they have great success at what they intend. And that becomes really hard for believers like us, doesn't it? I mean, honestly, right? When, when wicked people with their own intentions are exercising those intentions and their actions in this world or in our lives, it is really hard to receive that. It's hard to handle that. because, And and the reason that it's hard is because their evil is very real. The sovereignty of God doesn't in any way undermine the reality of that evil that plagues our world. And God's purposes in all of it are often not obvious. Am I right? Yeah. And sometimes we think to ourselves that whatever God's purposes are, maybe they're not even worth it. How can they be worth this? I mean, it's sometimes sometimes we say to ourselves, you know, isn't there some way that God could accomplish His purposes other than by using something evil? This was Habakkuk's complaint. In his day, uh, facing the same threat of Assyria, actually, Habakkuk complained to the Lord. And he knew, he knew this worldview. This was Habakkuk's worldview too, that God is sovereign. He's using these people as his tools to bring chastening on his people. Habakkuk 1 verse 12, he says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. You, O rock, have established them for reproof. But then in the very next verse, he says, But why do you idly look on traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man that is more righteous than he? I mean, why? God, I understand you use all things, even wickedness, but how can you use wickedness to punish someone who's, who's less, at least less wicked than that, right? And, and maybe you've felt that way. And, and, and just this, churning in your soul. And of course, part of the answer as to why God uses wicked things is that, well, if God chose not to use any evil to accomplish His own good purposes, He wouldn't be at work in this world at all. Because there is nothing righteous in this world. We would be utterly left to ourselves without any redeeming purpose in the world 
at all, redeeming the wickedness for some greater good. There would be none of that. Can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine that? Now, there's still wickedness, but now there's no redeeming purpose behind it. But God, God uses this wickedness. He ordains, He controls that wickedness to bring about His own good ends. But, you know, another important part of the answer to that question is really back right here in our text. Back up, if you go back up to verse 12 now. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will what? He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So God's going to use Assyria for his own righteous purposes, but then he's going to punish them for their own evil intentions. He continues in this vein down in verse 16, speaking of his judgment that is going to fall upon those who bring judgment, his destruction that's going to fall on the destroyer itself. Verse 16, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like a burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and the Holy One a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. And the glory of his forest, using this kind of metaphor of the uh, Assyrian army as a mighty forest, the glory of this forest and his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. You know, a kid can count them on his fingers, on his toes. And the Lord's going to bring a great destruction in a moment upon these people. And that is really the third major lesson in this passage for us and shape, to shape our worldview. It is that the Lord of hosts will judge the sin even of those tools that He uses for His own good purposes. He will judge all things rightly. His sovereignty, in other words does not undermine their own moral agency and accountability. And so when we're tempted to think at times when God works in the world or when He works in our lives that His treatment is actually worse than the, than the disease, let us not forget that the end is not yet. Amen? that not all the cards have been dealt, that not all the game has been played out, that the final judgment has not yet fallen, but it surely will. And I tell you, if all that you are, if, if the entire scope of your vision for justice in the world is only what happens under the sun, you will end up like the writer of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. It's all vanity and vexation of spirit, striving after the wind. You can never get a hold of it. But we look beyond the sun, as it were, to the one who, in the end of the book, judges all things justly. And that's what you have to do. To have a right worldview, you cannot, you cannot judge by the moment alone. No matter, and, and honestly, no matter how 
big you spread out that moment. Now, sometimes if you, you take that moment where evil is, is, uh, is winning and you stretch it out long enough, you'll see God bringing His judgment even in time. But as believers, we stretch that out all the way and we say, this God will, in the end, bring His judgment to bear upon all evil in the world. And that kind of thinking now, that kind of thinking that's anchored by these three basic principles of our worldview, that kind of thinking is supposed to produce in us the, a certain kind of response. That was God's intent, that that kind of thinking produce that response in His people. And He predicted that it would produce that response among His true people. This is twofold, this response or these applications. Now, beginning in verse 20, moving quickly. In that day, He says, the remnant of Israel, notice that word, the remnant of Israel, and the survivors of the house of Jacob will what? Will no more, will no more lean on whom? On him who struck them, namely Assyria. And that's exactly what they were doing, right? In Isaiah's day, King Ahaz, he was trusting in Assyria. He was leaning on Assyria. He said, in that day, when the Lord finishes all of his work, Right? These people will not any longer lean on Assyria, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Verse 21, the remnant will return. Remember, that was Isaiah's first son. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God, to Emmanuel. When we believe God's revelation, when we really buy into this worldview about what God is doing in, in the course of history, it will cause us to lean on Him instead of leaning on what seems visibly powerful, what seems influential and successful in Isaiah's day, Assyria. I mean, why trust the axe when you can... Trust the one who wields the axe. Why? Can you imagine that? Put the axe there, sit it up on your mantle, and get down on your knees and pray to the axe every day. Oh, axe, please help me. Please give me what I need. Please protect me. These people, if they would believe what God was doing in the world, it would, it would cause them to trust and lean upon the Lord alone. And you don't put your hope today in in your wealth when you know the one who gives wealth. The one who owns all of the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't put your trust in electing just the right guy into office when you know the one who raises up kings and puts them down. There's a book that was written many years ago called When People Are Big and God is Small. When Our Worldview is Upside Down from What God is Revealing. And that's exactly the way a lot of people live. As if people are big and their God is really small. That was Israel's view. Is it our view sometimes? And we see in these verses God's good intention in bringing all of this about. The, the remnant that remained after God's judgment of Israel, after His subsequent judgment of Assyria, 
They will, he says, have learned these lessons. He says, these people, when they see what I'm doing, they will be a purified people who will lean on the Lord alone. That was his intention all the way from the beginning, right? To create this kind of people. Now, how's he going to get to have this kind of people? Well, he's going to use a rod. He's going to use chastening. He's going to raise up Assyria. And then he's going to destroy Assyria. And he's going to send these people into exile. And they're going to come back. All of this these people will finally, in the end, be trusting in the Lord God, the Lord God alone. What a joy. And, of course, we're reminded that it wouldn't be the nation by and large. It would be just a remnant. Verse 22, Though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. God's righteousness even there in the destruction of His people. Verse 23, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as it is decreed in the midst of the earth. But the remnant, the remnant would lean upon the Lord God alone. Now, I want to ask you this. Who is that remnant? Where are those people? And we should let God's Word define it for us. Is that a good thing? You think God's Word should define our terms as we interpret God's Word? I think so. Paul quotes this very passage in Romans chapter 9, verse 27. We won't turn there. If you want to go back and look it up later, Romans 9, uh, yeah, I wrote Isaiah. Romans 9, verse 27. And he speaks of this same remnant, this elect remnant. He says, an election chosen by grace. And he says, they are called by God, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He says this in the context of quoting this very verse, right? God is defining it for us. In other words, this passage looks beyond the exile of Israel to the ingathering of all of God's elect from every nation on the globe. In other words, we are the believing remnant who lean on God alone, who think God's thoughts after Him about what's happening in our world and what's happening in our lives who rest in faith in His sovereign goodness. We are those people. And then there is a second response or application of this to the, that this kind of thinking engenders in the, in, the, in the minds and the hearts of God's people. Verse 24, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not what? Be not afraid. So first he says, don't lean on your own understanding. And now he says, here's a second application, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians Egyptians did. There really are, these really are the two options that you have for a faithless response that people might have toward worldly powers. Either on the one hand, they will lean on those powers and trust those powers and hope in those powers. Or on the other hand, they'll be quaking in fear of those powers. One of the two. Are we sometimes full of anxiety? full of anxiety when we see the wickedness around us in our world? And our God seems pretty small. 
in our own minds. The Lord says to His people, do not be afraid. Verse 25, for in a little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed toward their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as He struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, which actually the rock of Oreb's named after a Midianite prince Oreb, who, remember with Gideon and he, the destruction of the, the Midianites, and they all fled in this great battle, and Oreb escaped the judgment of God, but the judgment of God finally caught up with him at this rock. He says, I will turn against them as in that day, and verse 26, the end of the verse, and the Lord's staff, he says, will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And you remember what happened then, right? When the Lord, when Mo, the Lord lifted up his staff over the, over the sea and all of this pursuing army was wiped out as in a day, right? The Lord will do this, verse 27, and in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder. The burden of the Assyrians will be broken, the yoke of your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. And then you have in verse 28 and following a kind of prophetic depiction of this advance, this this city-by-city advance of the Assyrian army, kind of going back to the present now. All right, Here's here's what's going to happen. And and I'm going to put up a a little map where you kind of see the the sort of progress as as it works down as I read this text. But also you'll hear in the end of the ultimate halt of the Assyrian army before destroying the city of Jerusalem. He has come to Aeth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Give attention, O Lachish. O poor Anathoth. Madmana is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. But, then he says in verse 32, this very day he will halt at Nob, which is just outside of the city of Jerusalem. And all he will be able, the king of Assyria will be able to do, it says, is he will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. That's the Lord's prediction. That's what's going to happen. And as many of you know, the events are recorded for us later on in this book, in chapter 37. Sennacherib's army, remember, had surrounded, they had advanced all the way down to Jerusalem, and they had surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And the annals of of Sennacherib that we, we saw from earlier, they said, remember, he's got him like a caged bird. He's got him surrounded. Victory is just around the corner. But remember what happened with Hezekiah? He's part of that remnant who believed, who called upon the Lord, and the Lord heard and answered, and God sent His mighty angel into the camp of the Assyrians, and in one night, you remember this, I mean, we've been hearing a little, some about war casualties, and remember from past conflicts around the globe, you'd hear casualty numbers come in day after day, and so many uh, dozens were killed this day, and maybe a few hundred were killed this day. In one night, 185,000 of these this, this army was slaughtered by God. However God did that, 
the Assyrian army was, as it says in verse 15, 17, devoured as in a day. In other words, friends, the sovereign Lord says to the rod, that's enough. This is where you stop. And let me tell you this, friend. The, the sovereign Lord says that to the rod in your life. This is how far you can go. This is what you can do. This far is what I intend and no more. That is what will bring about my good purposes. And remember with the story of Job, that's exactly what we saw in it. God said you can go this far and no more. Even in his chastening, God shows mercy, doesn't he? He is so good. I have, I'm just overwhelmed by his, by his wisdom and his fatherly care. Even when he wields the rod, he does not wish any more suffering on his people than is necessary for their sanctification. Right? And whatever his tool, whatever his implement, whatever that messenger of Satan sent to harass you and drive you to humble dependence upon the Lord, your loving Heavenly Father is just waiting to say, okay, enough. Your work is done. My servant is purified. He's cleansed. He's learned. He's grown. He's cast his hope on me and not on the powers of that be. Friends, trust His wisdom. Trust His heart. Trust His sovereignty. Kiss the rod. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And He scourges every son whom He receives. In the very last two verses then, tell the end of God's plan for Assyria. Still using this imagery of a mighty forest, he says in verse 33, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs of te- with terrifying power, and the great in height, like Sennacherib, that tree that stood the tallest in that forest, will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low and he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon, that is Assyria here, will fall by, I just love this, by the majestic one. And after that overnight loss of 186,000 troops in that area that surrounded Jerusalem, Sennacherib, would leave the army and return home to Assyria. And his annals, uh, his version of the story, is actually strangely silent as to why Jerusalem, which was right in his clutches, was not sacked. He just goes on to say, well, they gave me money and all's well. right? This little puny nation that would rise up against me. I just find that sort of fascinating. But just like God's judgment caught up with Oreb, the prince of Midian, though he seemed to escape, God's judgment would, he said, catch up with the mightiest cedar in Lebanon in all of Assyria. And God's judgment reached Sennacherib just when he thought he was the safest, cut down 
by his own two sons worshiping in the house of his gods. And thus Sennacherib ends in 681 B.C. And thus ends Nineveh eventually and the empire of Assyria in 612 B.C. But 600 years later, the Lord God brought into this world Emmanuel just like he had always purposed. Born to the house of David, which was never cut off, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Amen. Praise Him. Heavenly Father, thank You for this Word today. And I pray that Your own revelation would shape our minds, our thinking, that we may think Your thoughts after You, O Lord, and that it would have its intended effect in the lives and the hearts and the emotions of these, Your children. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.